you don't know. You don't have control over tomorrow. What you do have control over is who you are in this moment. That's beautiful. So divine, get whatever divine wisdom you can. Live as well as you can. Be thankful that God like accepts you in your imperfection of who you are right now while knowing how you're going to grow and where you're going to regress and just live this moment well. And one of the things I say to people is I got enough trouble trying to be an authentic me that's like true to my calling, you know, that's true to my word. I just don't have enough energy to be policing everybody else Mm -hmm. to do that when I, when I can't, 100% 100% get myself on point. What do we mean when we say emergence? We've heard about emergence strategy. My most exciting spiritual work is around the emergence of a collective consciousness, around the practice of emergent dialogue. Today's podcast guest is, is bringing the concept to the church. My name is Gibran Rivera. I am a teacher and a facilitator, and this is my podcast. Here I am introducing you to, to evolutionary leaders, to people who are devoting their lives to the evolution of consciousness and culture. Today's guest is Reverend Mariama White Hammond. Reverend Mariama White Hammond is, is an ecological and social justice activist. She's an advocate of for youth engagement and for what she calls spirit-filled organizing. She's also the founding pastor of New Roots AME Church, an emergent church. So, so how do you take a 2,000-year-old meme? How do, you, how do you take the tradition of the Black church, something that has been established, something that has been here for a long time, how do you take it and open it up to the new? How do you make yourself available to, to what spirit wants to do now in its emergence while also honoring a, a tradition? It is, a, it is a fascinating conversation um, with a member of the church. Uh, I'm really excited about it. Mariama is equally uh, devoted for justice, to justice. She doesn't see a difference. When she came into the call, she had just been pushing the governor on the, on the new police reform bill here in Massachusetts. Uh, Mariama is the real thing. This is a great conversation, and I cannot wait for you to get to know her. Reverend Mariama White Hammond, it is so good to be in your company this afternoon. I am so happy that we're talking. Thank you for being a guest on the podcast. It's so good to be with you, Gibran. Yes, I, I have been, you know, we have been in each other's spheres for a long time. Um, there was a period of particular closeness and adventure while yeah. we, were, we were one of the bar fellows. That was a really, really <laughs> special time. Uh including some wild times before that caller oh, yeah. came on. Um, <laughs> we, won't, we, won't, we won't talk about that in detail, um, but uh, we haven't been in each other's company as much lately, and yet I've been aware of your impact on our world, and I've only been hearing good things about the wonderful things that you're doing, and I can't wait for our listeners to, to get to know you. Before I get into the you, 
who you are, what you do, how you got here. I always like to start with a question about belief. And the question I like to ask my guests is, what is a belief that you once held, an important belief, a belief that you crafted your identity around? Um, for example, I, I was, there was a long period of my life where I was just a Puerto Rican nationalist and everything was, everything was through that lens. It's amazing to me how central it was to my identity. I'm no longer that. Um, and the reason why I ask about that is because it feels like everybody right now is doubling down on their knowing, mm. on their beliefs, right? It doesn't seem like there's a lot of room to grow or change your mind. Like you just got to like assert that you're part of this tribe or that tribe. And uh, I think we want to model that to grow, to evolve, we need to change our mind. And so I just wanted, wanted to ask you that question before, as we start. Well, you know, you gave me that heads up and I had to look and I was like, oh my gosh, I have so many things I actually could say as an answer to this question. But um, maybe because this is most present in my mind um, this week, I'm preparing for uh, our Sabbath group that launches tomorrow. But I, I used to see efficiency as a virtue mm -hmm. and I had an identity as a doer. Mm. And, and I want to just be clear. Um, these are beliefs that are like at the foundation of like our society. And so I don't want to give people the impression that I have fully walked away from these things. These, um, I just came to a point where I realized, and this is also, I think, part of my faith tradition, this belief in grace that God loves us for who we are, not what we do, um, that we are more than workers. You know, I read the Communist Manifesto. I don't know if I would ever consider myself like a Marxist, but I was like, there's a lot of good ideas here. And, but then I just realized I am not a worker. Mm. That is what I do. It is not who I am. Mm. And, um, and, and, you know, as a joke, like these are my to-do lists. Like that's how I organize it. So people, this is like a real deep part of my ethos. Um, but I have had to learn to love myself for the human being that I am and not the human doing that I am. And that doesn't mean I don't continue to engage in work but I measured my worth so much by what I could produce. And um, I think in that, really being able to produce more than other people, being the superstar, being the highly productive person, but then pretending like I didn't care about it, right? And, and, and I just had to say like, where is that getting me? Who told me that? That just doesn't match like, as my relationship with God deepened, I just, I was like, God doesn't relate to me as a doer. There's something deeper. And so um, I've had to come to that for myself, but it also has allowed me, I think, to exercise deeper love for other folks. Cause I'm not starting with what do you produce and where do you rank and where do I rank? Like, who are you? What, 
who are you at your soul level? Let's appreciate each other there. Um, mm. And I have my good days and I have my bad days. Um, you know, this is a time when I'm trying to get a legislative bill passed and it's really hard not to be overly focused on how much I can, you know, how many emails can I send and how many more people can I get to call? But at the end of the day, my worth is not in that and neither is anybody else's. Yeah. Um, so still working on it, but yeah. Thank I you. Used to think it was like a center. And now yeah. no, it's not, it is not, it is no longer my truth. I am still working on my practice. <laughs> that is so beautiful and honest and I'm sure is going to resonate. I want to put a pin on this legislative bill. I want to hear about it in a bit, but let's stay here for a second because, you know, our culture does produce us. It creates us. It's, it constitutes us so that we want to produce and measure ourselves by what we produce. And it's really interesting because that seems to be especially true as we... Uh, ascend in mm -hmm. class yeah so there, it's really interesting because now you're supposed to have all the comforts but less and less of the leisure because all everybody that's got a good salary is also slaving away at their computers when they should yeah. be with their kids or their friends right it's, and bragging uh, about it like humble bragging about how many hours you work and i think you know there's a there's another layer for those of us who are people of color because I don't know if we've always, I mean, the whole idea that we have to work twice as hard to get half as far. And, and, and those things are true. I'm not, I'm not denying racism makes life harder, mm -hmm. but I've had to start saying even like, I love my grandmother and I love so many older black women who have, but, but I think there have been times when it's bad enough that white people made us workhorses, we cannot embrace that as our identity. Amen. That doesn't mean we don't have to do things. That doesn't mean I don't, sometimes I pray for God to give me the strength to do things I don't know how I'm gonna be able to do. But my worth is not in my work. It never was. And for me, that idea is the foundation of white supremacy. And the notion that my people could be reduced to how many bales of cotton they could pick and you know how many lashes that they could take. And sometimes I think we are still trying to pr prove our worth, especially those of us who move in often in predominantly white spaces where we feel like we are the ones representing the whole race. I gotta get it right. I gotta you know, be exceptional. And um, that burden gnaws at your soul. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and I would have told you, I had a whole, you know, I'm a black woman, I'm strong. And, and I, none of that is actually untrue. I do believe that I have a strength that comes from my ancestors. I, I do believe um, that, that resilience is in my DNA. And you know what? I can sit down, mm -hmm. it's okay. If I sit down, Amen. It's okay Amen. if all humans take some time yeah. to sit, <laughs> yes, to fall asleep, to sit on the couch in your sweatpants and produce absolutely nothing. Asher. That is also 
part of who I need to be as a human. Beautiful, beautiful. It's uh, starting to see leisure as an act of resistance, right? There's a tuning into that we can do to what is happening around us, to, to what the earth needs if we slow down. So much of it is we are, we're trying to work at an industrial pace. I'll often remind my clients that our only current response to increasing complexity is acceleration. But we have now reached the upper limits of our biologi- uh, of biological acceleration. We actually can't go much faster. And yet complexity is going to keep increasing. So we literally need a different evolutionary response to the complexity that we're contending with, right? It, we, it's, we can't stop fooling ourselves at doing more faster is how we're going to deal with the challenge of the time. And then the lie, because do you remember, like, I remember when there was a flip, when I had a flip phone and everybody was moving to text messaging. And I'll just be honest. I was like a Luddite and this was like, I was like, I'm not texting, like, please, you know. And when I finally moved to a smartphone, I told myself a lie. It was going to make me more productive. But all you end up doing is sending 50 times more emails than you already needed to. You don't, you never look up and say, gosh, since I got this new technology, I really am doing less. Because consumption and efficiency are insatiable. Once you create an hour of extra time, if you are stuck in that ethos, you will fill it with something new. And that, I think, is the the lie that I had to realize that I thought, you know, if I work really hard here, it's going to get me to a new place Then I'm going to not do that. But it's not true because you get addicted to that way of being. And so you just fill it with yeah. something new. And so I, you know, for me, I had to stop honoring it as a virtue. And, and I think one of the things that helped me get there um, was Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel's book on the Sabbath. I read that and I was like, you ain't never lied. You just, he just told some truth. You know, the, the idea that we are always trading time with this awesome gift from God, we're always trading it for money. Oof. And, and he says the gift of the Sabbath, because a lot of people know, you know, you're, you're not supposed to work and you're not, but you also are not allowed to engage in money at all. And that is because that is the human commodification of God's awesome gift of time. And for one day, we completely refrain from the commodification of time and we live in the gift. The gift we can create no more of the gift we don't know how much we have of, we celebrate it for what it is for one day for 24 hours. Wow. I, like I said, really good on the, the belief, struggling around the practice. I do get it one day a month. Yeah. I do do authentic Sabbath, but I need to get to one day a week. And it's a, yeah. I'm trying, I'm struggling, but I'm, I'm trying. I got I got goosebumps when you said it because I, I could kind of feel the call, right? I could kind of feel my body, my spirit saying there's a truth here that that it, it takes it takes discipline and care to adhere to. And that's going to lead me to the next question because I'm I want to talk about about your emergent church. One of the things that I teach and focus on is we want to make a change. So our hearts and minds could be persuaded that we want to make that change. 
But the fact that our heart and mind are there doesn't change our behaviors and practices magically, right? And so I'll say like, if I go to a yoga retreat, for example, I am convinced that I need to be a yogi, right? But if the, the alien comes in from outer space and watches my behaviors and my practices, they're not going to see that I'm a yogi. And so the way I talk about it is, is then I'll go and blame myself for my failure as if I didn't live in a structure and a system that were violently opposed to my being a yogi, right? And so I need to create structures and systems that most of the time, if not all of the time, we require other people, right? In order to make the change. Rather than wasting my time punishing myself because I am failing as an individual, right? as an individual against a wave of culture the cultural dominance that is a million times more powerful than I'll ever be. I actually need to find the others, right? And yeah. uh, and I think that leads me into one of the more exciting parts of, of, of why I wanted to talk to you, because I know you are in the process of building. And is it emergent? Is that the word we emergent church? Yes, that's one of the words that folks use. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about tell me a bit a little bit about that effort. Yeah. So I think um, well, I, I think there are two realities that I think. I need to name. One is that, you know, I grew up in the church. It was a beautiful experience for me. There were challenges, but on the whole, I actually grew up in a congregation where women were in leadership. Um, There were a lot of, uh, there was a big focus on social justice. Um, The one challenge in the church I grew up with in is it was not LGBT affirming. Mm -hmm. And over time that became uh, more of a challenge for me. more of something that God was really pushing my spirit on. So, um, and I realized that the experience I had um, of being affirmed um, in my ability to connect with God as a woman, as a black person, as a young person was not the experience that a lot of people had in a lot of other spaces. Many people I knew actually were like, you know, I'm feeling Jesus, but it's all of his people that I'm not like so into. <laughs> um, and and many people had been in church experiences that were like really painful. And so I, but then they were seeking me out. So there's this weird thing where it's like, I started to realize like people don't have, many people don't have a problem with Jesus. They got a problem with the institution. What would it look like to create a space that explicitly one um, was aware of and careful not to replicate the harms that had existed for people, served it as a place of healing. So a lot of our folks are are working through their previous challenging experiences and where we create something, where we commit to create something that we think reflects what we love about Jesus's example, in, 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 in practice. So I think that's one thing. I mean, I, I think it's important to note that yes, our, our church itself in some ways exists because of the damage and critique we've experienced in, in other spaces. But the second piece though is, you know, for me, when I look at the climate crisis, um, I feel like um, systems of oppression that we have, people have been talking about for generations, like it's not new, but it has now um, got to a point where we have a very short period of time 
to get it to, to say, this system doesn't work. We're going to walk away from it. Or Mother Earth is going to be like, you know what? What doesn't work about this is you and y'all got to go. Um, people are like, oh, we're going to try to save the Earth. Let's be really clear. The Earth is going to be around. What she isn't gonna do is let us keep living up in here the way we've been acting. That's right. And so, you know, I felt this intensity saying, all these things I have already cared about are meeting um, this moment where we have an urgency to act. And I felt that deeply. And I said, Holy Spirit, you, I cannot be the only person feeling this. Can we create a space where those of us who feel the need for this shift could begin to live into something different. It's exactly what you were saying about practice. Like if you're by yourself feeling like something is needs to change, it can actually be um, debilitating and demoralizing because you look at the scale of the problem and you're like, what am I supposed to do? You know, I, re, me recycling this bottle or me just turning off these lights, it's not gonna do enough. But if you begin to band with other people, you can begin to create an alternate ecosystem in which we practice differently. And if we can continue to invite more and more people into that, because first of all, not everybody's willing to step out and be the first person to test these things out. And so I am so thankful for my church because so many of our people are innovators. They are people who say, you know what? I don't know exactly how this is gonna work out, but I know we need to try and I'm willing to put myself out there to do that. And that's what we're doing. We're putting ourselves out there. We're making it along the way. We learn where we can from other congregations, other organizations, other historical community, wherever we can learn, we're trying to learn. And we're a little bit of a unicorn. People tell us that on a pretty regular basis, um, but we are trying to experiment into something that maybe if we can get some of the kinks out, learn some of the lessons, we can also offer what we've learned back to other folks who also feel the prick, but maybe they just don't feel quite enough courage or they, feel don't, they don't feel quite enough support to step out. Um, and so um, I am often seen as the face of the community, but like the real deal is spirit was speaking to all of us in different places and spaces. All I did was sort of put the call out for people to show up to a space where we could struggle together so and beautiful. therefore produce something um, that each of us couldn't have done. Oh, that is great. I, I definitely want to dig in, dig in deeper here. Um, I'll share a couple of thoughts. Well, one is, from what I understand, there's an emergent church movement. I understand that yours is one of the few uh, emergent churches of color or led by people of color. I do know a number of people in your congregation. They're phenomenal people. They really are people that have lived a life committed to, to the work of justice. And they're finding a lot there. They're faithful. They participate. I have been to a service myself and, and I was being quite moved. Um, so I want to learn a little bit more about the movement and about what makes it emergent versus small, for example. But I did, I did want to say, share, you know, I grew up in a very unique uh, religious community. And uh, it was uh, a community that, that was very much organized like Amy Comey Barrett's 
Um, it was just really interesting to see that come to the popular consciousness all of a sudden. It was like a covenant community. It was Catholic. It was charismatic. It was like as, as evangelical and Pentecostal. And by that, I mean, for people that do not know, like people that pray out loud at the same time and sing and dance for God and speak in tongues, right? Really fiery stuff. It was so beautiful and so problematic at the same time. And, and, but it, it was really, look, some of the Puerto Rican, most of the Puerto Rican kids that made it out of the neighborhood were the kids that were in that community versus not, right? So it provided something and it has shaped my spirituality. I mean, I'm grateful that I experienced a fiery embodied spirituality. It has also created some, some trauma, right? For sure. Like some, some like the fear of sexuality, all kinds of things. And, and lately, um, beautiful, great human beings that have done so many good things for so many people, uh, voting for Trump, you know, uh, on some, on some like Christian, uh, like old fashioned Christian, like it's really a really strange thing. And so problematic, but beautiful. I share all that to share a little bit of my story with you, but also to say, I can, I, ha, I get the scent of what you're trying to do. I get that. I get that if you, so if you do this differently, you can really be doing something that the world needs right now. So I wanted to know what an emergent church is. Like what makes it so? Yeah. yeah. So I, I want to start from where you were, because I think that, um, you know, I also grew up in a charismatic tradition, which at the time just seemed like normal to me. And now it's like, I see it in books. It's called the like neo-Pentecostal movement of the AME church. That's what they call it in like the theological. <laughs> anyway, it was your um, life. for me, it was just church. Like <laughs> I didn't know it was anything special. <laughs> um, but I think what was powerful about that movement is um, often churches that have a heavy emphasis on like charismatic manifestations of the Holy Spirit and like the dancing, the focus is on how we live as prosperously as we can here and get to heaven. Like, and I grew up in a tradition where there was actually a social justice bent to that, which is the Holy Spirit gives us the power to go up against the very like systems of oppression that would seek to take us down. Like we didn't see the devil as just somebody that you met in hell, but like the, the, the idea that, that evil was the active force in the world that like we were particularly uh, predominantly black church that held black people down evil was what was at the like core of slavery and it and it was proliferating and we asked the holy spirit to help us stand up against those forces and that's a very different like way of understanding the holy spirit and um i didn't know that that was like unique because that's just how i grew up and then later on, I realized that like, in general, you have like socially conservative, charismatic churches that believe in like the Holy Spirit and are free in their worship. And then you have like liberal, um, but like high church, don't run around this sanctuary. In fact, don't even speak during the sermon, right? And so you have these two like, very different strains. And I actually grew up in a place that didn't, that, that brought some of these pieces together in a way that I didn't know um, was unique until later. Now, I will be honest, we do not speak in tongues at New Roots because some of our folks are like not ready. 
But I do, it is one of my visions that those of us who believe deeply in embodied, like I, what I love is why shouldn't you dance with reckless abandon? If your heart is full of joy, why shouldn't you be able to express it? And quite frankly, if your heart is full of dread, maybe getting up here and dancing may literally free you from the anxiety that is gripping you. Now, I also want you to go to therapy and take your medication if that's needed. I'm not saying you don't have to, but my point is there are still places where therapy and medication leave you struggling. And why couldn't you dance your way, sing your way into a different place? Um, so I, I believe we are at a point where, I mean, this system is falling apart at the seams. We've got like a deadline to get it together. I, I'm just kind of like, we need to just go for it. Just go for broke. Um, and it's, it's sad to me, you know, as you talk about this tradition, how many, the church itself, its influence has declined, its numbers have declined, and there are a whole bunch of folks who think the solution is one of two things. Hold firmer to what we've already done and then try to convince more people that what we're doing is what they want. They've already told you that what you're doing is not what they want. That's right. And they so, want yes. Um, emergent church are those of us who believe that it's not that God is like, you know, radically different. It's that this moment calls for us to understand and manifest ourselves differently. And there are things that we're we are turning back to that have been lost. So one of the things that many emergent churches do is small groups. The belief, and that's like for, I've come out of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Small groups are about as Methodist as it gets, right? The guy who started Methodism, John Wesley, his big idea was that people didn't have to go to church or see a priest to know God, that a small group of people could get together, study, pray, um, and that God would, like impart grace that would allow those little band of people to become more than they could imagine was possible. It was revolutionary. And let me tell you, the Episcopal church, which is what he was trying to change, the English church was not trying to hear it. They was like, you can go talk that all you want. Don't bring that up in here. So we ended up becoming a whole new denomination. But this idea that people want to be in small groups where they can be known where they can put out their heart's desire and where somebody can say, I love you. And I think you can do better than what you're doing right now. I love you. And I see this gift in you that you may not even see in yourself, but I'm going to speak into you that I see it. Um, those spaces we need now more than ever, because we're in theory more connected while we are simultaneously more alone. Um, and so I think um, emergent churches are places where we believe God is doing something new in this moment. Let us make ourselves available Amen. for God wow. to emerge. Yes. Let us pay attention. I mean, one of the big things is we say, where is the spirit moving? Let us go where she is, as opposed to God, show up where we are. We believe that, that God is already moving, always has been. Our job is to show up where spirit is already moving um, and not try to make people come to some way of being 
that maybe maybe it did work for people back in the day. It ain't working now. That's right. That's beautiful. I love so much of what you said, but especially, very especially, because it's a language that I've been using. And that's what I love. It's like, I feel like we, 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 we have these parallel lives, um, these similar callings. And I'm doing my work outside of the Christian tradition. Uh, but one of I, the, the, what I would consider like the edge, the farthest edge of my spiritual work, because I think my, my spiritual work is layered is this, this collective consciousness dialogue process where really what we are, we're doing is working with people to do exactly what you're saying, make ourselves available for the collective consciousness to speak through us. Um, and, you know, one of the, I'll say two things, just back to the dancing for a second, because I do a lot of men's work and uh, have these beautiful memories of, the men in my community in this men's retreats, just jumping, leaping, and dancing for God. And there was this song where they evoked King David. And, you know, King David, there's the whole story that you know better than I do about, you know, he's, he's like taking off his clothes and like dancing because the ark was being brought, you know? And, and they were, his people were like, well, you're a king. What are you doing? And he was just like, this is what you do before the Lord, right? That, that kind of divine ecstasy, which I found so, so holy and formative. There is something, we can talk about the ailment of the culture as like postmodern narcissism. Right? We, we really, really, the individualism goes so far that we become, and so that means that our healing process can become narcissistic. It means that our kind of spiritual but not religious vibe can become quite narcissistic, you know? And there's something that the churches and other religious communities provide, new or old, this, that is about bringing us back to the community and the collective and that kind of accountability. Um, and I'm just very appreciative of you doing that. What I understand as well is that you're directly connected to, uh, to social justice work. So right now, right before this, you were trying to convince the governor, right, to, to, to kind of accept a bill as it was being paused by the legislature. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that and connect it to, to, the, to the church building effort? Yeah, yeah. So. Um... I think that while our aim and our eyes are set on what we believe the world can and should be, we talk a lot about Jubilee in our, um, our tradition and the idea that every 50 years, God called on the people to reset and do, and do differently and to, to share resources differently. We believe in all of that. And folks is going through some real struggles right here in the here and now that um, if we don't speak to the justice realities of now, then we have a problem, right? And so at New Roots, we talk about justice and jubilee. Justice, we really look at as the work we do to correct, do the best we can to ameliorate the situations that are now. And jubilee is the work we do to imagine new systems and walk towards them. You have to do both and um, because folks are hurting in the here and now. And if you don't have anything to say about that, um, that's, a, that's an issue. So this police reform bill, um, we've been working on, and it's, it's been, I mean, there's just so many people. I, it's, 
we, I am just in part of a one coalition and there are multiple of them. And then there are all the people who aren't part of anybody's coalition, but took to the streets. So it has been a huge collective effort. Um, but our, our piece now is around um, much greater accountability for the police. They are tasked with holding all the rest of us accountable for you know, laws and agreements, yet there's nobody that holds them accountable to make sure that the contract we've said, we've said you can walk around with a gun um, and enforce the laws we've agreed on, but who double checks them? to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to do. And, you know, obviously the police union is very uh, against this, um, but accountability is a two-way street. Yep, <laughs> accountability is a two-way street. Um, and one of our speakers today, um, you know, said, he named clergy, a clergy person, naming that we have, as clergy have done great harm to people. We are given the sacred task. and and some of us have used that platform to create great damage, not just to individuals, but societal damages, ripping apart people's, people's faith and communities. We need to be held accountable. We need to radically transform. And the same is true for the police. Um, and so, you know, my invitation to, to them and to all of us is to create a system that reflects the interdependence that we should have in our society. Mm. Currently, the police unions on the whole are not accepting that invitation, but I'm gonna continue offering it to them. <laughs> I'm gonna continue framing it that way. And I'm gonna tell the governor, if you mess up this bill, I'm gonna hold you accountable for not helping us to get on the path to reform. And I do try, I do engage in the legislative space, I, I do organizing and you know very you know traditional issues immigration and I try in my organizing always to name who is being harmed mm -hmm. and the fact that I cannot in good conscience sit back while this harm continues. Right. I'm not trying to harm the police. That's not the goal. Right. I am asking them and our electeds to take more seriously the damage that is being done to some of our neighbors. If you choose not to take that seriously, I'm gonna make that invitation a little louder. <laughs> Sometimes I may hold you accountable by saying, you know what? Maybe it's not your calling to lead us right now. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's Maybe right. we need to choose someone else who is more in tune with what is possible in terms of creating a world where we do no harm. So, you know, I try never to um, kind of hate people and get into us versus them, because any day now, I could look up and find I was doing harm. I have looked up and found the things I didn't even think about, things I didn't even know were doing harm. That's right, I've experienced so that too. We all, we all do harm. Yes. But once we know the harm is being done, we have a collective responsibility to change it. And sometimes we only will change it when it's certain kinds of people. Like one of the things that drives me crazy, I am so glad that we have finally gotten to a harm reduction conversation around uh, drug use. Mm -hmm. But there was a time at the beginning of the opioid crisis where I felt some type of way 
Because when black people <clears throat> were struggling with addiction, it was lock them up, lock them up. When white people was like, oh my gosh, they started off with this injury or they have this death in the family and the next thing you know, they turned it. It was like, you don't, you think black people just woke up one day and said, All right, you know what? I want to go out and get addicted to crack. They have the same kind of traumas in their lives, traumas to their bodies, traumas to their spirits. Nobody wakes up and chooses to become an addict That's unless right. they are in pain. That's right. And so our ability to see some people's pain and not others is something that as a sin at the heart of this nation that we have got to change. Yeah. Um, that's right. And so I keep inviting people. I invite you mm-hmm. into a better way. Amen. But I may invite you kind of loudly. <laughs> you have to think. think. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. If you got the power, you're going to use it. I, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, been reading, kind of catching, keeping up with the national news and the national debate on, you know, now that the election Uh, is done, regardless of what some people want to say about whether it's done or not, now that it is done. Um, there is an internecine debate within the Democratic Party, right? And you have people saying, well, you know, the reason why the Democrats won the House was because they were able to turn moderate districts. And now with slogans like defund the police, Um, what you're doing is scaring those people off. Meanwhile, you know, the progressives are like, here we go again, you know, you gotta, we always gotta take a back seat and, but this is what we mean. And, and so it's, it's an interesting conversation. There were, there was a time when I would just kind of be like, the moderates are wrong. And uh, of course, this is what we gotta do. But it's really clear that this country is really, 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 really divided, right? Uh, and I'm just curious to see uh, what is your assessment of, of that debate? Even President Obama recently was like, hey, I don't know that you should be uh, saying defund the police as a slogan. That's not very strategic, right? And I'm just curious as to how, how you think about that from both the principal perspective, the strategic perspective. It, yeah. it seems very present. Yeah, so I um, would certainly be labeled a progressive. I'm like, these days I'm like really an- annoyed with labels and binaries. I just don't think they're helpful for us. You and me both, yes. Um, I think they they um, allow us to think we know who a person is in short order. And, you know, but that being said, I would be, I when you look at what I believe in, I would I would certainly be labeled a progressive. That being said, I actually don't think the moderates are actually wrong. Okay. And I it and it hurts me to say that. Yeah. Um, and I'll say why. I've been um last year some friends of ours um put out an offer their parents had donated uh given them, you know, their house to inherit it. and they decided that all of us would create all 10 of us a black owned um cooperative farm in New Hampshire. Nice. Because of that, I've been spending a lot of time in um There's one Biden sign in my neighborhood that I know of. And in New Hampshire? I could, yeah. I, I'm in Loudoun, New Hampshire. And um, it's outside of Concord. So Concord's a little bit more blue. But I am in a serious red community. <laughs> um, and I, I was, you know, farming I'm farming garlic and I'm trying to get seeds from people. And so I'm, I'm building with other farmers. I'm learning. I need to learn and build in relationships and co- local 
folks that I can connect with. And it has brought me into some interesting conversations. And I think the challenge is, um, I believe deeply in um, the fact that we have asked the police to do things they are not good at. They are, they are not good at. And some of these things, I don't think they're ever gonna be good at. That's right. I just don't think, I don't think you can be ready for like a tactical takeover of like downtown Boston and a really good mental health provider. Like it's just not happening. <laughs> no. It's not the same skill set. And I just think it's a bad idea. And so we as a society have kept handing over to them responsibilities that I don't think they're going to do well. So right. from that perspective, I do think take the money that you were giving to the police to handle mental health and give it to real mental health providers, That's which has been yes. really underfunded. So from that perspective, yeah, that way of thinking aligns with some of defund the police. I also believe that, that if communities had some of the resources that they need in terms of education and food and other things, you wouldn't need the police as much. All of that is true. That being said, there is a deep divide in this country that is old. It is, it is like in the DNA of who we ha are and we have not worked it out. Mm -hmm. And many of us who are progressive hang out with other progressive people and do not talk to the folks that feel really differently. In fact, you dig a little deeper. Some of us know those people and we only try to see them on Thanksgiving and avoid the conversations. That's right. Right? We don't know how to have those conversations even with the people with whom we share blood. Mm -hmm. And I wanna be honest. I think we have a lot more clarity of what we do not like than we have vision of where we want to go. Mm. And I'd like to believe if we had a more compelling vision of where we want to go, we could enter those conversations differently and if we were spending more time creating community, I mean, that's one of the reasons that I'm doing what I am with, with, with New Roots. If people can see it and feel it and say, I'm feeling something here I've never felt any other place. That's right. It's different. And I think, you know, one of my, one of my farmer friends who, you know, we are about as far apart on the issues as ever before, but he will tell you that he, he can feel that I love him for who he is. Some of the things he says, I think are crazy and I will tell him that. Um, I do not believe the coronavirus was created and was gonna go away after the election. <laughs> I don't think that's true either for some reason. <laughs> but um, we haven't talked since the election about that. But anyway, the point being, um, but the reality is I believe that this system even the parts he upholds that hurt me, it doesn't work for him either. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work for any of us, but you know, there's a few small people who it's really working for. But most of us, it doesn't work for us. Yeah. So I think, um, I, I do think, I, I love my progressive brothers and sisters, but I don't think we are being honest enough about where our country is, where our people are, um, and we, I would challenge us to do some deeper listening and then ask ourselves, um, what vision are we offering people? Because we sometimes be so woke 
There's no room for anybody who doesn't know everything we know, who doesn't think just like we do. Um, well, it's 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 fundamentalism. It's the same. Kind, you've seen it in yeah. you see it in religion. You see it in the church. And We're sometimes, it, yeah, I feel like I'm in um, you know leftist or progressive spaces, and it feels like the flip of what I experience in evangelical spaces. Yeah, it's the same. It is. Like, it really is. It's 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 fundamentalism, and it's it's dangerous. And I'm glad we're talking about this. And I'm glad you are a church leader and you're bringing people together because I think that's a big difference. I think there's something about right when your politics become your religion, then you're relying on an ideology uh, to, to derive meaning and community from. And, and an ideology will always come up short and it will always seek to answer everything. Ideologies are totalitarian in their nature. They are, they're, more, they're modernists, so they try to answer every question. They don't give us the skill to be in the question. And I, I feel like, and I'll connect this to something you said earlier about climate change. I, I wanna get into this with you. There is something about spiritual development that's different from political development. You know, and spiritual development demands that we dive into our own frailty, our own darkness, right? Our own fallibility, our own sin, to use Christian language. It demands that we acknowledge that. It also makes room for redemption, right? For you to screw up and be brought back in. There's something about it that that demands you you grow as a human and and the reason why i'm i'm so focused on that is i too have churn analysis that that we that our dates are counted in terms of climate change now i see our task as dual we need to do everything that we can to stop the madness right on climate and we need to be sober and see we are living through a time where even a pandemic, where your neighbors are getting sick, can be denied, right? The science, the, the, it's something that's happening within a two-week framework, never mind years. Yep. It's being denied, right? And so- People who are literally dying themselves, yeah. <laughs> telling the nurses, you don't know what you're talking about. It, well, you don't know what you're talking about because you're definitely on that ventilator. It's, it's, it's a very scary thing. And so- what I'm trying to say here is, I think the role of spiritual leadership is to develop the humans that can tend to our descendants, descendants who are going to like, definitely, no matter how successful we are, live in a world that is going to be less stable. The climate is not just gonna come back into shape in the next generation or two, right? Like it will take, it will, we have hard times ahead. We have hard times in front of us. And the, and the role of spiritual leadership, I think, is to, is to prepare us to, for that and to prepare us to be good ancestors in training, yeah. right? So, so what we transmit to our children and their children is not the, the political ideology of the day. It's how, what does it mean to be a human being in the middle of an apocalyptic moment? Uh, you know, I, I, I feel like we gotta, we gotta, I'm not, I'm not trying to be pessimistic, but we need to work both tracks. We need to be sober 
about what we're doing. We need to remember the stories that teach us how to live. Uh, and we need to tell them, retell them and practice them. Yeah, no, and I think, um, we also have to create safe space to live into new ways. Because I think one of the challenges is that people won't leap from where they are. Well, most people, mm-hmm. most people will not leap from where they are if they can't see where they're going. That's right. And so some of us have to make that leap. We may fall down a little, scrape up a little, but we can then build a bridge back or send wisdom back or create a landing pad for people so that they too can make that jump. And I think, um, you know, when you're talking about ideology, some of us are just way too much in what we, this is also a challenge I have with, you know, with Christianity, what we believe and don't believe. And I'm not saying that's not important, but we could stand to emphasize what we do and don't do also. That's right. Um, how we create spaces of practice. Um, and you know what? One of the things that I love about, you know, my spiritual practice, apart from ideology, is that I can also just say, you know what? I don't know. Yeah. People will ask me like, oh, how's that happen? I'm like, oh, that's a bit about my pay grade. That's spirit's work. Like, I don't know. I'm following what she told me so far. And I'm trusting that she can see what 2021 is going to have and 2022 is going to have. I can't see that. It's never going to happen. I could do as much scenario planning as I want to. I'm never going to know. So I just kind of need to be faithful to what I do know in this moment and admit that I I don't know everything. And I I think... um, I have just, it's shocking to me how comfortable I have gotten with not knowing. Because let me tell you, if you, when I was like seven, if you asked me what I was going to do, I had like my whole life planned out until I was like 50. (laughs) Way extra, like way extra. If I could go back and tell my, you know, seven-year-old self something and be like, girl, just go outside and play. You don't know what's going to happen next year. Like, (laughs) but I was like, you know, and then I'm going to go to law school and then I'm going to, you know, it was just, it was real extra. Um, and you don't know, you don't have control over tomorrow. What you do have control over is who you are in this moment. That's beautiful. So divine, get whatever divine wisdom you can live as well as you can be thankful that God like accepts you in your imperfection of who you are right now while knowing how you're going to grow and where you're going to regress and just live this moment well. And one of the things I say to people is, I got enough trouble trying to be an authentic me that's like true to my calling, you know, that's true to my word. I just don't have enough energy to be policing everybody else Mm -hmm. to do that when I I can't 100% get myself on point. So I think one of the things I love about Jesus's example is that he just lives it. Yeah. Like, you know, he tells people, he tells people really great stories. So he was a great narrative teller, you know, but he also is just like, I'm gonna go hang out with this person. I know y'all going to have a heart attack, 
I'm, I'm about to just show you what the kingdom of God looks like by who I hang out with, Amen. by when I just stop, by when I relate to the people you think you cannot understand. You know, it's just, um, we just got to live into the new world that we want. And Amen. love, love, love to progressives. But we spend a lot of time talking about it. Not enough time living into it. It, I mean, thank you for saying it. I sometimes see the way, because I, you know, I facilitate some of this ultra woke spaces, and I'm like, wait a minute, like I don't want you in charge because this is feels feeling, this is feeling really oppressive to me. You know, this is feeling really judgy, and and really scary. It feels scary to be here. It feels like I can be exiled at any time, mm-hmm. and that that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't bring me in. I appreciate. This this speak this talk of faith. You know, when before we started talking, you read a scripture, your scripture for the day, and I caught a beautiful statement, which is don't worry about anything and pray about everything. And I, 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 we're coming to a close. I want to talk a little bit about prayer. I'll tell you where I'm coming from. I I am working the 12 steps and uh I can double down on that effort during during this pandemic. Um, and so it has me praying so much more. And I grew up praying, and then my spiritual practice evolved, and there was still praying as it became, as it kind of took a new shape. But then I feel like we can get into this spiritual but not religious vibe, which which can be kind of really my mindfulness oriented, which I love. I don't want I practice meditation, but but prayer can fall over by the wayside, and there's something to that. To that ritualized practice of speaking to the divine as if they're a person, right? Of, of communing, of saying thank you, whatever you call it, the universe, right? Uh, thanking, exper- exp- praising, and asking for help, right? There's something so healing in that. It has me more focused on my 24 hours, on my day. It has me building a deeper trust it helps me uh against any kind of anxiety it just i am really into it these days you know <laughs> because these are days of high uncertainty you know when i teach oh yeah i teach about vuca every time i teach you know volatility uncertainty complexity ambiguity that's the order of the day yeah. and what i what i don't teach as much in my facilitation but it, i do in other spaces is prayer is <laughs> It's answer number one to the problem at hand. And I'm just wondering as, as we start to as start to close the conversation, what can you tell us, Reverend Mariama, about prayer? Uh, so one of the other things I almost um, chose as something I've changed my thinking about a lot is around the nature of power. As a community organizer, I was like super into, you know, social power, economic power. Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I've come to a point where I, realize um, I, I had an experience where uh, long story short we were in Standing Rock we um, were uh, potentially all about to get arrested they arrested one the one native person who was with us put him like put him in cuffs about to put him in the paddy wagon we we're being surrounded by um, by uh, uh, troopers dressed in like full riot gear and um, there was a moment where spirit was just speaking to me guiding me and I was able to talk to um, the police officer and convince him 
to let this young man out of custody if we all agreed to leave peacefully. Mm. And, you know, people were like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. People were like posting it on the internet. And what I realized is there is a power beyond that power. And I think what I believe about prayer is that um, it is an invitation to tap into that. Of course, of course. Look at that. My my phone goes off and I can't stop. The governor. Oh my gosh. It, it actually is an elected person, but I'll call them later. They can wait. Um, but I think that um, this is real to how real life is. It just like inserts. But um, there is something beyond this human plane to which I want to be connected. Mm-hmm. There, I pray not because I want God to do things for me. I do ask. But because it reminds me I am just one person. Mm-hmm. It reminds me that I am God, not God, and I don't want to be. I am so thankful that I'm not God. Oh my goodness, you are so thankful. We're all so thankful that I'm not God. <laughs> and it in that moment reminds me that my grandmother's been doing this for centuries. That's right. Mamas that I don't even know their names of have been humbling themselves in this position. Amen. There's somebody in Mecca. There's somebody in Sao Paulo. We are all humbling ourselves in this position, knowing there is something bigger than us. And these days, I think we all feel that there is something bigger than us overwhelming, whether it's the pandemic or racism or um, any number of the challenges that we're facing on a regular basis. I need to be reminded there is something bigger than me that is beautiful and loving um, and wants me to become the best I can be and doesn't need me either. That force doesn't need me (laughs) and willingly invites me into being part of the unfolding. Um, Grounding myself in that on a regular basis is what helps me get through the craziness that is this life. And 2020 has just taken it to a whole nother level. That's right, that's right. I'm just like, what? I literally have a prayer date every single day now. I used to have it like twice a week. No, now I got it every day with somebody else, plus my own, because Lord knows there is a lot of need for prayer. So, you know, I, I know people who say all the time, oh, I don't know how to pray and how to, I don't think you have to say the right words. Hmm. I invite you. And I do, I do like to kneel. I do like to um, often position my body in a certain way um, because it helps me to open myself to the fact that there is an eternal um, God who is bigger than me, doesn't rely on me, but invites me in. Um, and that God knows what's going on, knows it, see, knows me better than I know myself. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I, I appreciate that so much. I can feel the I can feel the truth of your prayer in what you're saying. I mean I I like to remind people, for people of color very specifically that we wouldn't be here, that we've been through the apocalypse. We were prayed danced and sung mm-hmm. into being that's we are, are we are the prayers of our ancestors and we have a responsibility oh, so much. 
Um, I want to touch a different question, but I got to ask you this one quickly because I can't miss it because I might start doing it. What is a prayer date? How does it work? What is my prayer practice? What is a prayer date? You said you have a daily prayer date? Oh, so um, I have somebody else? people. So yeah, on Fridays, I pray with Jonathan. On Wednesday, Mondays and Wednesdays, I pray with Sasha. On Tuesdays and Thursdays. And it's still like you get on a Zoom call for like five minutes. Like how does it? Yeah, we do phone calls. Sometimes we do Zoom. Um, we check in about our lives and what we need to pray for. I confess like, Girl, yesterday I just went off on somebody. I, I was in a meeting and somebody said something and it just like, I don't even, you know, there, there were some challenges with it, but it, woo, I just, I snapped at them, you know? So I, ju- we check in about the day and we often pray. So we pray for each other, but we also pray for other people. Um, I keep a little prayer list in the back of my um, to-do book. So, you know, because people always say like, I'm praying for you, but then they like actually aren't. <laughs> I try. I I try to be like if I tell somebody I'm praying for them and I don't write it down, then I'm gonna be a hypocrite. So I I have a little list. Um, sometimes I do that with my prayer partner. Sometimes I do that at my own personal prayer time. But um, just people that I hold in my heart, and I can't wait to meet some of them because I feel like I'm gonna be. Oh, I'm gonna become like one of those grandmas. Like, oh, I've been praying for you for like months, and you're like, who is this lady? Oh my gosh, I became that lady. Um, but all of you us, know, that's great. How long are the dates? How long is are these connections? Um, theory in theory, they're supposed to be 30 minutes. They often run about an hour. Just to put that, okay. you know, obviously COVID has been extending because people have been going through. So one of my prayer partners had COVID. We were praying over, I mean, we were praying for everything, praying for the lungs, praying for, you know, praying for her son who also got, you know, so um it really depends. But they're a combination of a check-in. Um Sometimes when when one of us is really going through, a little time to cry, and then really, really putting it before God. That's amazing. That's super special. I love it. I, I want to do something with that. Mariana, we, we're coming to our time. I want to ask you a question that I ask with every podcast um, episode. Um, you know, I have made it my life's mission to to work with men, to work on the on on the development of conscious masculinity. Um, I see it as my own work of atonement for my own sins of patriarchy, for the wrong and harm that I have caused. Um, And I make it a mission, a purpose to when I'm in before a powerful, wise woman such as yourself, uh, to ask the question from your perspective, thinking about men, the state of men, you especially as a clergy leader, married woman. What do you think men should do? Wow. Become better. That's a good question. So I, um, well, one offering is I hope more men will free themselves to have a good cry Mm -hmm. from time to time. Now, my husband is not really into it, but he's a, he's a stoic, like overall, like he doesn't even get, we go to a Prince concert, his favorite like artist, And I look like I like Prince more than he does. But so, you know, we're all different. And I want to acknowledge that we have different um, emotional ranges, but um, I have, a, I, I like, I hope to have a good cry at least once a month, no less than once a quarter. Um, because I, I, and the reason I say that is I find so many men with pent up stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's pent up, 
They can't look at it. And there's something about a good cry. And maybe there's another release mechanism. Maybe that's just mine. No crying works. You just need to let your stuff hang out so you can actually look at it. Mm. And um, I give, and I, this is something I challenge a lot of women around. I think we also participate in um, underscoring this notion that like men need to be stoic and they need to behave a certain way and they can't do that. And then you're like, I'm like, you're, you're wondering why it comes out in anger and all sorts of other stuff because we need to be free to just let it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's one thing. I also um, think that I find this challenging dichotomy between men who want to dominate and men who just want to like abdicate all mm-hmm. responsibility. And it's like, I need us to come to a healthier partnership um, and I, I actually think today, today I was working with two men on this press conference around police reform and, um, you know, in organizing work, you deal with egos a lot, right? We're all fighting against the power while simultaneously grabbing for as much as we can get ourselves personally. So, um, you know, I actually thanked both of them because there were some things I did well and some places I dropped the ball and they like graciously named that, thanked me. And I said, it was really grateful to, it, it was a beautiful experience to work with no ego, low ego men. Mm. And I, I think you get to low ego, no ego when you just work through your stuff. Mm-hmm. Like we're just, you can have grace for other people. You can have grace for yourself, um, you know, and so, I don't necessarily want to be prescriptive because I, I I really actually value the work that you do, Gibran, and the and the beauty that you bring to it. Um, and I don't claim to know that experience in the same exact way, but I um, I have certainly at earlier times in my life uh, embraced my own kind of chauvinistic like ethos and and cloaked it in feminism. Like I'm about to show these men how it is, right? And it's like, what kind of like energy is that coming from? Um, so yeah, so I I I really just want men to free themselves to work through their stuff. Cause so many of my challenging experiences I have now come to see. I didn't exactly see them this way at the time, as people's stuff falling out all over me. In ways that were painful, in ways that were uh, sometimes dehumanizing. And I hope more men will give themselves the space to work through their stuff. And I'm sorry in any places where I've contributed to a mentality or way of being that has robbed men of their full humanity and asked them. to be less than. Mm. I didn't know any better and I did the same thing to myself. So let's collectively choose um, to embrace the fullness of our humanity, to offer grace to ourselves and one another um, as we journey in this life together. That is so beautiful, Mariama. Thank you. Thank you so much. I would definitely hold that and bring it to the brothers. I am looking at the time. I, 
I have one question mm-hmm. close. It includes a, a, an invitation, a, a consent for mild facilitation as I invite you to see yourself 20 years from now, right? See yourself 20 years from now. You don't have to tell us what you see. You have achieved some of the things you said to achieve, haven't achieved others. You've grown in ways you meant to grow and ways you did not know you would grow. You've experienced losses that you were hoping never to experience. You have it? Mm-hmm. Okay. So then the invitation is to come back as that person with that wisdom and share with us as we close, what advice do you have for yourself and what advice do you have for us in that voice of the future? So I've actually thought about this and I usually go out um, 30 years to 70, which is when I tell people I'm officially retiring. <laughs> got it. You got a plan. I'm going home <laughs> and I'm going to sit down. You can come. There will always be food in my house. There will always be a garden growing in the back, but I ain't going to no more meetings. <laughs> in front of any more protests, you know, but you can always have a good meal and I will tell, you know, share my thoughts with you. And, and I think I need to start that now. I mean, I've, I have tried to get more serious about having plants around me, the beauty of growing my own um, herbs. I just cut up some of my own rosemary um, to make some uh, uh, spiced nuts. I, I, I make things um, I can. Um, there's a beauty in um, the earth in growing your own collard greens that you put in a pot and feed to your family around the table. Um, These things are beautiful and eternal and we've outsourced some of them because it makes it faster, but nothing tastes like a thing that you grew from seed that you remember in February where you put it in the little like, you know, little greenhouses I have and now it's in a pot and now it's on a plate and you're serving it to people. And I, I, I encourage people, not everyone can do all of those things. Um, you know, m- my friends call me Black Martha Stewart sometimes and I make my own candles and everything and you may or may not be able to, but, but there is something to be said for putting your heart into something yeah. and then offering it to someone that you love. Um, and I try uh, to find ways to practice that on a regular basis. So um, at some point, Gibran, I'll bring you by. I have my own cranberry ketchup that I made for Thanksgiving. Um, I've got dill pickles that I grew in my own garden. Um, These things mean a lot to me um, and they sustain me. Um, So my my 70 year old self told me to to get on it and I'm learning in my 40 year old self. Ashe. Thank you, Mariama. What a beautiful way to connect. Thank you for your wisdom, your passion, your commitment. It is good to walk the earth with you. And I hope that uh, this leads to a reconnection. I got I, I, the, the idea of building spiritual communities is a big part of my life. And yes. I tend to keep learning uh, from what you're doing. So let's, let's be in touch. I can't wait for the listeners to get to know you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Gibran. And oh, I should have, I know I said a goodbye. Where should people find you, Mariama? I'm sorry. Um, I'm terrible about promoting myself, but I'm working on it. Um, I do I'm I do have a um 
place on Facebook, Reverend Mariama White Hammond, where you can follow. And I, I'm not always good about it, but I'm getting better about posting the places where I'm speaking or the work that I'm doing. Right. Um, I'm working on a book that hopefully I'm going to finish in 2021. Keep that yes, in your right. prayers. Yes, you are. Um, and then the church is www.newroots.church. Um, so. Amen. Thank you. Love you immensely. My regards to Ron. Thank you. Many blessings to you. If you get this far into the podcast, it's because you get what we're doing. We're not trying to reach everybody. We want to reach the right bodies. And so what I'm asking you to do is to think about one or two people that you could take this podcast and forward it to them, whether it be a text, an email, a note from you. You know that social media is a crowded and messy place. And the way we are going to build community is not by big broadcast, but by person to person, peer to peer, finding the connection with what we're trying to do. I'd love to ask you to be a part of that. Uh, that's how we'll grow. And I don't mean grow for growth's sake, but that's how we will be able to, to sustain this work and to come together and experiment with new ways of being with. I want to shout out Audio Chemists and Austin Jade for the production of this podcast. And to you, I'm wishing that you stay awake and stay blessed. Thank you for listening. Many blessings.